Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford. And I'm your host, Elizabeth Moeller. And today we are here with David Mitterauer, a PhD candidate in the English department. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. This is super exciting to be here. Great, great. Well, we're going to capitalize on the palpable excitement that you are exuding at the moment. And to introduce you to what we do here today, I will start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at Western. Okay. Um, I am a uh, PhD student at Western, um, a candidate. I am in my third year, which is starting the third year. Um, an international student. I am from Austria. So um, we'll talk about that probably shortly, um, but sort of where um, a lot of what I do um, is also personally motivated in sort of the background of World War II that we have in, in um, you know, with the, the historical background of Nazism and all that, um, where my, my research interests sort of came from and which persisted even, or which were there even before I started university. Perfect. And it's those research interests that we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. So why don't you start us off and explain what you're primarily focusing on for your PhD in the English department? Right. So um, I should probably say that my specialization is um, is Black um, thought and um, sort of um, slavery in the early Republic, um, also romance and antebellum politics. Um, that's sort of my, my main interests. Um, and um, as I just hinted at, sort of a, another component of that is sort of white supremacist narratives and extremism. Um, when I say this, that's usually the point where people start looking at me very suspiciously. Um, so I usually qualify this um, right away um, that, you know, my, my research in sort of white supremacy texts isn't necessarily a, something that I do for fun or the enjoyment of it, um, but, and it's also sort of a different, um, a different focus than when we think of white supremacist texts, we might think of, say, um, Mark Twain, Huckleberry Finn as a key sort of text that, um, that you know, struggles with racism and somehow tries to complicate um, racism a little bit um, or um, yeah, like it's, it's these kind of things um, that sort of the, the American literary canon um, that, you know, has sort of its encounters and origins in white supremacy. But what I do um, is a little bit different in that I'm looking at overtly um, sort of white supremacist texts that really are more of political projects than sort of aesthetic um, for or than researching it for aesthetic reasons. Um, so I think there's, um, you know, these are worth um, researching um, because they tell us a lot, first of all, about um, our present moment, um, our, um, especially in, in the case of um, the United States, of course, um, and the rise of, of sort of white supremacist thought, um, but also sort of tell us a lot about how a past society imagined itself when I'm looking at 18th century, 19th century um, texts that um, sort of try to situate themselves in sort of this new nation um, and, um, you know, the, the myths that the cultural myths that come along with it. So that's sort of one, one part um, or a, a disclaimer that's important to give, I think. 
And you, I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit about a term you used a moment or two ago, black thought, um, and just unpack that a little bit. So black thought, I use that very, very loosely. Um, so I'm primarily, or I'm, I'm really interested in um, black writers. So black here also can mean African-American, um, can mean black as its own sort of um, identity, um, but I usually use black um, when, and, and sort of what I'm interested in is sort of philosophy, how um, black um, thinkers, say Frederick Douglass, for example, um, as you know, one of these key figures of abolitionism and like 19th, 19th century um, abolitionist political discourse, um, think about the world around them, think about their, um, you know, the place of um, people of African ancestry in um, North America. And essentially sort of, um, you know, I, I, black thought for me also means not purely um, sort of this political and abolitionist um, motive, but also um, sort of how to, how to think about oneself and how to um, sort of found a, or um, promote um, a, a you know, a, an affirmative culture in a very, you know, at that time and, and still even very hostile um, cultural environment. Well, I'm glad we, you know, sort of laid the foundation for understanding one side of the focus in Black thought. Now I'm going to ask you to define white supremacy. And I understand that this question is somewhat difficult to answer, but in your vein and what you've seen, what are some of the common traits that you associate with white supremacy? Um, so white supremacy is primarily um, in like the way I would think of it in 18th and 19th century, sort of this, this formation of, um, of, you know, pseudoscientific ideas of um, the superiority of um, white people or the inferiority of non-white people, um, if we just use that term um, for now, um, in the sense that there are, um, you know, cognitive um, or um, sort of uh, physical, um, you know, physically inferior um, characteristics that, um, you know, manifest in um, biology. So um, it's sort of, as I said, like it's this beginning of, of phrenology, um, these sort of, um, you know, quests for, um, for um, looking for differences, racial differences that aren't necessarily there. So um, one of my personal Bibles um, in, in this sense is, um, Nell Irvin Painter's um, The History of White People, where she really nicely um, sort of draws this long um, history of how whiteness as um, a term formed itself, um, right? So um, ideas going back to, um, you know, um, Greek philosophers or um, sort of Roman commentators on society like Caesar, um, where sort of race had this more like sort of biological determinist um, characteristic in the sense that sort of where you grow up or where you live um, in on the globe um, sort of determines your characteristics, like what sort of a person you are, right? And what sort of your, your specific um, features are, but also sort of um, social characteristics and how and, and your, your cultural ideas in that sense. So, um, and, and how that then 
emerges sort of as a as a pseudoscience, right? So, sort of phrenology and race science. Um, there are sort of a lot of writers um, and and scientists who um, sort of try to find um, these these racial differences, but no one can could really agree on anything at that point. So um, Blumenbach, for example, is one of the, the key thinkers. And if you look at others, um, there are really strong differences or like variations in what they thought was, you know, Caucasian um, as sort of this term for white people that itself is, um, you know, has nothing to do with um, Central Europeans or, um, you know, like mainland Europeans in that sense. Um, so it's really um, it's really interesting to watch um, and see, and see sort of this this evolution of um, these ideas and how they they um, sort of really complicates our idea of um, or these these myths and notions of of race um, more and more over time and how slowly sort of this starts to really manifest into a really focused political um, discourse in the end. And. Um... A little while back, you know, uh, white supremacy in terms of uh, what, it, what it is and sort of how it's unfolded. I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about how that's unfolded specifically in, in different types of literature, specifically the literature that you're looking at. Um, so the thing is, um, my project has, and I probably should talk about my project now um, in, in that connection. So what I'm doing um, is, um, is looking at romance as a, as a discourse. Um, so romance, we also think of it as a genre um, and how that um, unfolds in the slave narrative, early black fiction and um, pro-slavery literature. So um, pro-slavery literature is sort of my, my main field where I look for or where I work on, on white supremacist thoughts and um, sort of these 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 formations of, of political discourses. So, um, you know, much of the pro-slavery literature emerges sort of in, in like the mid um, 18th century, I would say, where um, we have this early, um, this beginning of an abolitionist movement and um, sort of demands to, to stop the, the Atlantic slave trade um, and um, sort of this, this you know, a, a definitely sort of a political, become, that, that it's becoming a political issue in that sense. Um, and we have um, various people who um, start writing nonfiction. So um, specifically for the American context, we would of course think of Thomas Jefferson's Note on the States of Virginia. Um, which is like this huge um, ethnographic, also geographic treatise um, that sort of, you know, responds to very specific questions of what America is and why, um, you know, why Europeans should take it seriously as um, a, a nation or as a developing nation. And um, part of that um, is, um, so Jefferson goes through this, entire thing of describing the geography and all that, um, and then describing um, sort of the society and the difference between New England and the South. So we have sort of this formation of, um, of um, you know, the, the South and the Southern states as this culturally distinct um, geography. 
um, in within the United States, um, and it's from that sort of these these very ideologically motivated, um, but also um, kind quasi scientific um, treatises that um, pro slavery literature um, starts to form, and that then. Um, you know, develops sort of a fictional component to it. So um, what I'm looking at when I mean, uh, or at the slave narrative, if that needs to be, um, you know, defined in more detail um, is sort of a, um, is a, um, a, a genre of nonfiction. We would think of it as life writing probably today. So slaves, ex-slaves telling um, their story of how they got to freedom or very, you know, the more earlier slave narratives often talk about um, conversion experiences where they um, sort of adopted Christianity um, as um, sort of very a key liberatory practice. Um, and sort of the, the critical consensus um, in like, you know, the last 20 years in my, um, in my experience is that um, much of pro-slavery literature is a response to, um, on the one hand, the slave narratives, on the other hand, sort of this rising and very coordinated abolitionist movement. So um, there is this, um, in many ways, sort of um, pro-slavery writers um, try to, um, you know, speak back to um, these testimonies, right? These testimonies about escaping slavery um, and, um, try to um, quote unquote correct what they see as misrepresentations um, of slavery. So there is sort of this own. It has what we would probably think today about it as a as a misinformation component um, that um, sort of these, these pro slavery texts distort reality and sort of negate the um, the truth that the slave narrative um, tries to speak um, and tries to record. Right. Um, so from that, we have sort of this development of um, a, a very sort of romantic um, in the sense of a very um, nostalgic um, form of writing that always yearns back to an earlier past, um, something that's, um, you know, very idealized. So be that the early years of um, the American nation, um, or um, if we get to sort of the 1850s where um, the, um, the, the discourse around slavery really heats up um, that they would look to sort of the 1820s, the 1830s um, where um, we have, you know, where westward expansion basically really start gets going um, sort of as this um, pastoral ideal. Um, and so from then on, and that's sort of what my, my MA thesis kind of tried to point out and work through is sort of the continuities of um, many of these pro-slavery ideas and white supremacist ideas um, that then carry over into post-Civil War literature. Um, so we would think about, um, people would probably be familiar with um, The Birth of a Nation, so um, D.W. Griffiths. Um, film and sort of one of the, the, the first blockbusters of um, American cinema that was celebrated until very recently um, that sort of draws on Thomas Dixon's The Leopard Spots, for example. So um, a, a Ku Klux Klan narrative um, that sort of tells about the, um, sort of the 
about um, reconstruction and um, sort of this sense of the white community feeling, um, you know, endangered and that sort of um, these um, the North controlling the South because the South lost the Civil War um, sort of really destroys society and sort of um, harkens back to this idea um, of Jefferson and this fear of a race war, right? That if white people are not in charge, then um, Black people will turn the violence that they experienced against white people, right? So this key fear of, of retaliation um, and sort of that continues very much into sort of the 20th century where I, um, in my methods, also look at um, contemporary sort of white supremacist science fictions or speculative fictions rather um, that more or less do the same thing and um, try to, and imagine sort of um, on the one hand a, um, you know, white nationalist utopia um, or also sort of um, in, in terms of the more tragic in the Aristotelian sense, um, sort of this, this downfall of, um, of civilization um, when non-white people, quote unquote, um, take over. So um, this is like so kind of the, the, the trajectory of, um, of fiction um, and sort of this development from nonfiction into fiction. And they always are pretty intertwined. Um, so what I said about Jefferson, we can transpose in a similar way to um, the 1850s and 1860s where George Fitzhugh was this major um, agrarian pro-slavery philosopher, um, or rather um, I would usually more call him a, so a sophist. Um, and um, then we can, you know, we, we move on into sort of the, the 1930s and the emergence of eugenics or like the heights of eugenics rather. Um, and sort of the, how we can see how nonfiction always sort of informs fiction and, and vice versa. So um, that's sort of, um, does that answer the question? This was a really long-winded response. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, no, David, I think after hearing a lot of what we're saying, uh, it's important to contextualize the time period we're talking about and the fact that literacy rates were not where they were at this point in time in our current day and age. How did literacy rates affect people's abilities to tell their stories since many slaves would not have been literate and there would have been por portions of, of poor white populations in the South that also would not have been literate either. So I'm curious to see how that truly affected the narrative going forward. Right. Um, that's a great question, Liam. And that's at the core of my, the core problem of my dissertation sort of um, because it has a, um, a book history aspect in the sense that I, you know, really try to, because this time around, I'm not really doing this, um, this thing as in the MA thesis where I try to sort of point out continuities until our present moment, but I really want to look more at a, at a historical moment and learn as much as I can about it. Um, and there are, um, you know, there is only so much that we, we can know about this and, and how we can answer um, that question, how even sort of the, the interpretive space that we have um, to, um, to figure these things out. But um, like what I've learned so far um, is that definitely, so um, what I'm trying to do in my project is sort of create a transatlantic focus um, and look at romance 
um, in the slave narrative, early black fiction and post-slavery literature um, transatlantically. So I'm not purely interested in um, the um, America and sort of um, American literature as this nationalist project. Um, so like one of the, the things that um, is really is so interesting, I think, about the, um, the 18th century and moving into the early 19th um, is how, um, you know, interconnected um, and how there are these emerging um, book markets um, at that, that time, right? So print culture um, really only sort of takes this mass media um, form in like the 1820s, 1830s. That's when um, like printing really takes off. Um, and, you know, one sort of Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin as, um, as sort of the, this really major international bestseller um, is sort of the, the white reimagination of the slave narrative in many ways. So there are these, um, these connections to draw. Um, but um, as, as you said, like liter literacy rates wouldn't have been that high. And what I've learned so far is that, and like what we've, what we know and what's pretty common knowledge um, is that sort of printing mostly happened in the North. So in, in New England, um, in Boston and Philadelphia um, and New York later on. Um, so, you know, the South always in many ways um, lag behind um, in literacy rates and also in, in publications, therefore. So, um, you know, a lot, Americans mostly um, would read um, British novels or sort of European novels and, and um, poetry because there just isn't this, um, you know, this infrastructure there to, um, to really have a book market of their own and sort of, you know, writers can't, um, for a pretty long time, weren't able to, to live from writing alone, right? So um, it's sort of this, this connection between um, the sort of the material realities of, of reading um, and, and literacy. So yeah, definitely, um, you know, poor white people specifically in the South would not, um, would probably not have been, been able to read that much. Um, what I've, what my sense is from the literature so far is that um, the idea of um, illiter illiteracy um, among um, enslaved people is sort of, is, is partially a myth. So um, there are these arguments that um, there is sort of, depending on how you define literacy, that there are partial literacies. Um, there are sort of these historical documents where slaves um, wrote letters to each other. Um, so there are sort of these, these elements that, um, that um, complicates this, this idea of um, most slaves wouldn't have been able to read because um, they weren't taught or they had to do it in secret. Um, and increasingly sort of scholars, I feel like question more and more how slaveholders would have enforced um, these, these state laws that you weren't allowed to um, educate your slaves or that they, um, you know, couldn't um, meet for, for um, religious purposes or something, right? Um, so it's all a little bit more complicated and even um, although, and that's the problem because we will never really know um, how that really turned out, but even poor people, um, if they um, wouldn't 
have the means to buy a book because a book was really expensive back then, or um, if they were only partially to read, there would be reading circles um, where, um, you know, they would have heard that or, um, you know, slaves would maybe um, retell stories that they've heard or that they have been told to them um, in, in other ways. So um, this is sort of the thing that's really complicated um, in, um, in my, in my dissertation so far. And I'm only, as I said, I'm third years so and only just really starting out on that project. Um, but what's really been interesting so far is looking at, um, you know, how romance as a genre and as a discourse um, sort of develops and, and sort of has sort of a presence in, in even the slave narrative, which is nonfiction, right? So romance as this, um, as this key um, sort of fictional genre that um, that sort of elevates individual stories to a more universal significance, and even um, you know very often has sort of a, a very religious component to it as well. So when we think of the romance in, in English literature, um, we usually mean um, the the medieval romance, um, so something like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So these really key medieval texts um, that um, sort of, you know, face questions of, of duty to God, duty to your Lord and all that. Um, and um, what I'm looking at sort of is how this, this um, translates into um, sort of the slave narrative as a non-fictional um, genre that still, um, in a sense, has storytelling techniques in many ways. Um, and then also early black fiction. So what I mean when I when I say early black fiction is something like um, Frederick Douglass's *The Horrid Slave*. Um, when we think of Douglass, we think of his own slave or his own narrative, his own sort of biography um, narrative of the of the life. Um, but he also wrote fiction, or he quite briefly dabbled in 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 fiction. Um, and then we also have um, William Wells Brown. Um, William Wells Brown's Clotel, um, which is really a, a very, very hybrid text in many ways that has um, fictional elements, but also clearly sort of draws on a lot of abolitionist, um, a lot of abolitionist um, ideology and all that. Um, so what I've been trying and sort of the main um, thing that I'm sorting through right now um, is to look at what were people reading back then um, and specifically the novel because the novel is sort of the thing that um, mostly or that most strongly incorporates romance and draws on it um, and to understand what what people read back then so I already said most people mostly read um, sort of the, the works that came over from from Britain um, and slowly, um, you know, people would try to, or American writers would start their own novels in, in sort of this, this similar fashion. So the romance in America, we usually think of um, James Fenimore Cooper. So the leather stocking tales. Um, so these, these frontier narratives of, um, you know, the, the early um, sort of, um, what should I say? So, so the, the early Republic, even before that, the colonial period um, and um, encounters with indigenous people um, and sort of also, of course, very, very racist um, depictions and, and imperialist depictions of, of indigenous people. Um, and that 
sort of figures in American literature as well, in many ways that um, we have sort of this, um, this formation of romance and nostalgia towards um, sort of the people that were in America before, um, you know, Europeans came over and this, uh, all these myths of um, the vanishing, uh, the vanishing race um, as, you know, indigenous people um, as slowly disappearing, which is a myth that, um, you know, still is really, really strong um, in um, sort of um, the, the, the national imaginary. Um, so yeah, like that's kind of the, the direction that I'm taking. That's sort of figuring out who read this and what I'm especially interested in, what the black writers read at that point. And that's something that's, that was surprisingly difficult to answer for me um, in at least so far. Maybe I haven't found the, the perfect source for that yet. Um, but, you know, we, we know that people, the black people read, um, as I said, sort of this, this um, the literacy rates, um, um, we, we probably should approach with caution in some ways, but also, um, you know, if we look at Frederick Douglass, for example, um, he chose his name Douglass from um, one of Sir Walter Scott's poems, um, The Lady of the Lake, um, which, you know, very, very loosely references sort of these, um, the, the, the Scottish clan Douglass. Um, and that's in many ways, no coincidence that Douglas, I mean, sure, maybe he probably just really liked the poem, um, but also sort of aligning yourself with the clan Douglas, which was sort of this, this um, very, very powerful um, clan in, in Scottish independence movements against Britain, right? And these like the, the Battle of Bannockburn and all that, um, that he sort of aligns himself with, with that has meaning in itself and sort of tells you how sort of literature also informs, you know, abolitionist, um, abolitionist ideologies and, and especially uh, black, um, black thinkers and black abolitionists. So Ignatius Sancho, um, he was not a, he didn't write fiction necessarily. Um, so he wrote, he, he's mostly known for his letters, which were published um, after, after his death. Um, and he was really, um, so, so he was, he lived, he lived in, in London most of the time um, and was pretty, a prominent figure in sort of the, the literary circles in, in London. Um, and one of his best buddies, it seems like, was, was Lawrence Stern. So one of the major British writers at the time um, who wrote this really, really long novel, Tristram Shandy. Um, and... Um, Sancho, in one of his letters, um, you know, specifically um, points um, points to Tristram Shandy, or like several times in the letters uh, references it, but specifically writes to to Stern and says like this is an awesome work, and especially um, your character of Uncle Toby, which is a very sort of um, quixotic character. Um, you know, really um, influenced him in many ways. So. Um, this is sort of one of the, the connections that I'm really interested in because um, Tristram Shandy is a pretty difficult, even for today at least, a pretty difficult text to read. Um, it's probably more prominent um, for, for people back then and like all the references would be um, more intelligible. Um, but it's really interesting to see and to wonder sort of what Black people found interesting in these texts and how they um, sort of themselves picked that up and, and did their own thing, right? Sort of this, 
um, as Henry Louis Gates calls it, so sort of the signifying, so to to pick up a um, a white tradition and then do your own own spin on it and sort of make it uh, you know appropriate to your own um, sort of either you know um, liberatory or or just um, self fashioning um, purposes. So um, that's sort of one of the things that I'm trying to to figure out, and I'm sure there is even more out there that I haven't. Um, discovered yet but um yeah like sort of my my dissertation sort of tries to um go through um these these phases of how um sort of book history and the the, the book markets in in sort of the the atlantic um develops um how nonfiction picks up um or is sort of draws on romance um and how that then carries over into into black fiction and how pro-slavery narratives um sort of do their own thing in the sense that um you know this they they feel the need to respond um to this black fiction right in ways where um they see what they write as a corrective um to to ostensible misrepresentations um or and at the other um on the other hand um sort of a, a more recent argument that i find very um very interesting um is that um sort of this myth that um pro-slavery um, thinkers created of the South, so as um, inherently agrarian, um, pastoral, like this sort of, um, you know, the, the idea of um, the New Eden, America is the New Eden, um, and um, sort of how this myth starts to square very badly um, towards sort of the 1820s, 1830s with a South that is increasingly industrialized um, and where, um, you know, sort of urban um, areas really start to to change in their their structure, um, and still sort of these pro-slavery writers hold on to this um, this image of the plantation um, as this um, as this sort of almost um, or you know not not almost but definitely um, very paternalistic um, space where um, the planter as this um, you know all very wise um, and and benevolent um, figure um, steers um, the slaves as the extended family as they would think of it um, and um, sort of that's sort of what where I'm what I'm interested in sort of where. Um, how black fiction in many ways undermines and, and forces um, pro-slavery literature to, um, you know, to, to sort of um, alleviate these cognitive dissonances between um, their idea of this inherently benevolent institution of slavery um, and sort of the atrocities um, and the suffering um, that is just in plain sight of everyone. And also, of course, um, the, the clear evidence of um, black genius of black creativity um, that is there like all these people who um, against all odds um, you know publish their their narratives um, publish fiction um, and publish sort of engage in political discourses and all that um, so sort of uh, you know it's something that um, that pro-slavery writing has a really hard time to um, to contend with actually um, so yeah, I'll leave it at that. 
Very good. It it sounds like the breadth of your project is 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 quite magnificent to put to put it lightly, and I think that's important in order to encapsulate the true essence of the narratives that were promoted at the time. Now, David, we are almost out of time, so I'll ask you one more question. And if you'd like to pass along either a website or your social media today to our listeners. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm not overly active on Twitter, um, but if people are interested in following sort of the folks that I follow and um, sort of discourses on, on um, you know, black literature, extremism, white supremacy, um, and general sort of for, you know, more Ontario um, related things um, like indigenous um, activism. Um, I'm on, on, on Twitter. Um, so um, if you, um, you can find me at, at um, D Mitter Hour. So that's D and my last name, M-I-T-T-E-R-A-U-E-R. Fantastic, David. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, because I think this opens up an excellent conversation on the promotion of Black literature. And we didn't even mention names like W.E.D. Du Bois or M.A. Césaire, which perhaps would be the uh, context for another conversation with you. Uh, but for the, until then, we bid you for farewell. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host was Elizabeth Moeller. We've been speaking with David Mitterauer, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, or Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have yourself a wonderful day.